Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verses 25 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we've been talking for a few weeks now about places in Scripture where people found themselves called by God. As at Jesus' baptism, or when God first spoke to the prophet Samuel, and we've been thinking about the ways, too, in which we can hear God's call in our own lives. But with all of the noise in our lives, with how many things demand our attention on a daily basis, it can be difficult to hear God's call. And even when we do hear it, there's no guarantee that we'll understand it. But there's another obstacle that stands between us and following God's call, though, which I think is just as critical. It's all fine and good to talk about hearing and understanding, but what about, what about when you do hear what God is calling you to do, and you do understand what's being asked of you, and you find yourself frightened by it? With how much we emphasize praise and celebration and rejoicing in the Lord, it seems strange to also acknowledge that every instance in Scripture where someone found themselves in the presence of God or one of his angels left them absolutely terrified. But both of those things can be true at once. We can celebrate the work that God has done and is doing while also recognizing the sheer magnitude of his power. The same power that causes everyone who encounters it to fall to their knees. Because it's by that power that he is able to do his work. In order to really look at the question of how to handle being afraid 
to pursue God's call, we have to accept the simple fact that for as wonderful as it is, encountering God can be a frightening thing. God is disruptive, after all. And even though a relationship with him draws us into something so much better than anything we could know otherwise, it still requires that we move away from the comforts and habits that we're attached to. We're called to step from one life into a completely new one, where there are new priorities and goals, and where even basic morality, the metrics that determine what's good and what's bad, are different It's a lot, and it's all punctuated by the fact that it centers around the one who's powerful enough to create everything from nothing. His presence is overwhelming. Our scriptures this morning describe it like the brightness of the sun or like a rainbow in a storm. But it seems to me that these are just human attempts to put into words something that's beyond description. Remember, the Lord is the one who created storms and who set the first rainbow in the sky. And it was him that ignited the sun and started its burning. So it would be impossible, I think, to stand before that Lord, to be in the presence of the author of creation without realizing just how great he is and how small we are. And to have experienced new birth through Christ And to know the amazing work that God can do in a person is to be aware of the fact that God's power is not just cosmic, it's not just out there, but it's personal as well. And I've been to several national and state parks in my life and I've seen the beauty that God placed on this earth. I've been left speechless by the enormity of mountains and been awestruck by the vastness of desert plains. I've had that moment under the stars where you realize that each of those tiny points of light is so massive and distant that there's no meaningful way for us to conceptualize them. I've been awestruck countless times by the author of creation, but nothing, not one of those moments could prepare me to fully experience the power of the Lord of my life. Jesus says that God cares enough to feed the birds, and then he asks, how much more than he cares for you? God, powerful enough to form the world itself, knows you and loves you deeply enough to work within you. All of that power, and God cares for you. That's amazing, and it's intimidating. So we can see that God's presence is beyond our comprehension because his power is beyond our understanding. And we're assured, too, that he cares for each of us individually. And because of that, that he is active within our lives. Yet there's a certain kind of uncertainty in that because we can't fully understand his plans. And that uncertainty can at times leave us anxious and afraid Now, if you've talked to me, you may know that I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors. And if you've read C.S. Lewis, then it might make some sense to you why I seem to use a lot of commas. I blame him. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis famously has one character, Susan, ask another, Mr. Beaver, who is a beaver, if Aslan, the lion that represents God, 
is safe. The other responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think there's real wisdom in that. Let us never pretend that encountering God is safe, nor to expect that it should be. Because if we become convinced that life with God is never dangerous, then we run the risk of never fully experiencing it at all. This is deeply important, especially if we want to live lives that are open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because how can we ever hope to be changed if we're not even willing to step beyond the box of safety or, heaven forbid, predictability? God called on his people to stand firm in their faith, even when it meant being thrown to the lions or into a furnace by a king. Even when spreading the good news of salvation meant leaving behind everything they knew, as with the fishermen we talked about last week. So why then would we believe that God wouldn't even call us to do something uncomfortable or frightening? When you look back at all of the incredible, unexpected things that God did throughout Scripture, it becomes clear that we can't predict what God is going to do. We just can't. We don't have the understanding. And yet, and yet, for as consistent as Scripture is at describing how overwhelmed people are when confronted with it, when they encounter the Lord, it's just as consistent in describing his immediate response and command to all of them. Do not be afraid. Everyone who comes face to face with an angel, every prophet who's given a message is told this same thing when they fall to the ground. Do not be afraid. This seems strange because just a moment ago we were talking about how powerful and terrifying God's presence is. And just a moment ago we were coming to terms with the fact that God's work is dangerous and it's unpredictable. And all of that is true. But it's also true that we have no need to be afraid even in the midst of those things. And here's why. Because God is good and protective and he is making us new through Christ. Just like Mr. Beaver says about Aslan, our reason for not being afraid isn't tied at all to the fact that God's work is safe because it's not. In fact, safety in the present rarely factors into the work that God is doing in eternity. Rather, we have no need to fear because we can trust that God is good. So let's take a moment just to think about what good means in this context because it's something different from what we usually mean when we talk about good things in everyday conversation. I'll start by saying that good certainly does not mean pleasant or easy nor does it mean that your desires will be fulfilled. In fact, Scripture tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love God, but we also know, just from listening, that plenty of terrible things happen to people who live faithful lives. This is why we can't take working together for good as a simple or a light thing and it certainly should never be used as just a platitude. Because having bad things happen doesn't mean that a person doesn't love God enough. 
And having hard times certainly doesn't mean that they're bad. And even though it's an easy thing to say to someone who's struggling or who's experienced loss, simply dismissing misfortune as God's will carries the implication that God himself does the things that cause pain. And I don't believe that that's generally the case. But consider this. Consider this other way of looking at it. God is calling each of us, and indeed is calling the whole world, into closer and more perfect relationship with him at all times. And we can have faith that in the end, when everything is completed and we stand resurrected into eternity, that we will be perfect in the company of our Creator. That is good. That is the most good thing. And yet, even still, even knowing that, even with that blessed assurance, we're called to live as Christians now and not just in eternity. And so we also have to look at how God is working now as well. As I said, it's clear that bad things happen to faithful people, so we can be sure that working for our good doesn't mean that everything in every moment will work out perfectly. But consider this, no matter how bad the situation, no matter how terrible a loss or a tragedy, God can and does continue working in the midst of trials and hardships, whether by giving comfort, strength, and peace, or by using a faithful person to show his love, or in another way altogether. And in that, by working in the midst of a seemingly unworkable situation, God does work for our good in even the worst of times. And we also know that God is protective. I mean, just think about all of the forces that are competing at all times for your affection. All the lies that our world tells you you must believe in order to be happy. Everything around us bombards us continuously, trying to woo us with promises that this thing, this product, this experience is the one that you can't live without. It's amazing that any of us can believe otherwise. There's no doubt in my mind that God is continually fighting for your soul because he's protective of it. And not only does God work for the protection of our souls, he is, in fact, creating within each of us hearts of strength and courage by making us new through Christ. And it is that new heart that allows us to hear the command, do not be afraid. Because as we're made new, as we're made righteous, we become people who are able to trust. That's the key word here in all of this, is to trust in the Lord. So we recognize that God is powerful and awe-inspiring, and we recognize that we have no, near, no need to fear despite the unpredictability and danger that comes along with following because God is always drawing us closer to himself, closer to perfection. When we accept that God is not safe, but he is good, and we're willing to approach him anyway, even knowing that he's not safe, we can find ourselves in the same place as the prophets in our scripture. Not just the scriptures we read this morning, but all of the prophets throughout. Standing amazed 
before the glory of God. And out of that glory, God speaks and gives us his message. Out of that glory, God presents us with his calling. Ezekiel tells us that he, found, he fell face down upon seeing the likeness of God. John does the same upon seeing Jesus standing in glory. Now certainly this is partially out of fear. God wouldn't have to reassure them otherwise. But these were holy men standing in the presence of the one to whom they devoted their whole lives. And so this, surely, I have no doubt, also had to carry with it humility and reverence as well. Finding themselves before their Lord, Ezekiel and John would have recognized their own inadequacy and unworthiness and felt the need to repent and be purified, but they would also have been struck by the majesty and perfection of the Lord their God and filled with worshipful joy. What better response is there to God, after all, than to bow and praise Him? For us, too, the presence of God should fill us with humility and repentance as well as joy, because it places before us both the depths of our own need and the great heights of God's grace. We are fallen people, and Scripture is clear that the only wages we earn by our own actions are death. And yet, we simultaneously see that God, in his eternal goodness and kindness, has given us the opportunity to claim the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ, as our own, so that we're judged by his life rather than ours. With humility and thanksgiving together, we bow before the Lord, ready to hear and listen to his word. And it is a great word indeed. Here's a question for you. If you had to do it in just a few sentences, how would you summarize the gospel? Something I might say is this. I might say that the good news of Jesus Christ is that the world is being made new, that our desperate search for wholeness and fulfillment and satisfaction can be finished because in Jesus Christ, we can have all of those things. And in his death and resurrection, he overcame death itself. So if he conquered death and we stand with him, then what do we have to fear? But here's the thing, though. That's how I might present it to you as I stand in the pulpit of this church and you sit in the pews. But that's probably not how I'd present it to someone that I meet on the street. You see, it's important that we not just bow before God sometimes, but that we live lives of humble, joyous submission, listening always for the good news. Because the message is so all-encompassing, all-encompassing that it can meet the needs of anybody, no matter what they are. For someone, for example, from a broken home, part of the good news is that God has prepared a place in his own house for them. And it might resonate to share Psalm 23 that says, Surely goodness and mercy 
will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or for someone who's lived with little, we can proclaim that God has a setting for them at the heavenly feast, because nobody will be lacking for anything in his kingdom. Read scripture and listen to the promises that God makes. There's a lot of them. And don't try to box him in to narrow expectations because the work of God is abundant and it's open to everybody because everybody needs it. And so we have to know that the invitation of the gospel is meant for everyone as well. And finally, as we hear God's message and see what he's calling us to, we have to be willing to follow through and proclaim it. As I said, part of that involves seeing the deepest vulnerabilities and needs in one another's lives and proclaiming that Christ can work there to lift them into wholeness. But we're called to do more than just proclaim the gospel with our words. Our church, our community of faith, is called on by God to be a part of the body of Christ and to do his work in the world. So as you recognize the needs of the people around you, also recognize that you can show God's love to them through your actions as a Christian and that we can through our actions as a church. Take, for example, somebody who's lived a lonely life. We can tell them that not only does God have a place for them where they are wanted in his house, but we can say, we also, as a part of the body of Christ, have a place for you here, and we want you with us. So go out from here this morning, humbly listening for God's call. Go looking for his awesome presence in the world and his incredible work in your life, and don't be afraid to testify to what he's doing. And go knowing that the good news of the gospel is meant for everyone. And that the invitation to see and be a part of the Lord's work is extended to all people. Know those things and proclaim them to the world with confidence in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.